3: Manchester. <laughs>
0: <What>? <laughs> we might have known that we're in fucking New York City. We're not in Manchester.
3: Okay. Yes, okay. it's true. That is true. We were in Manchester.
0: <laughs> Welcome from what was supposed to be Manchester.
3: We yes, exactly. We uh, okay. So as you know, last podcast on the left did a really fantastic European tour. Where uh, seriously, you guys did everything: uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, which is the same place, the by the way. Place, yeah. uh, yes, Dublin, uh, Dublin, Ireland, also in the same place. <laughs> different
0: I, place, different island. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then, and then, other places so important. I don't need to even remember right this moment uh, Amsterdam
0: Amsterdam you were too high to remember
3: ah uh, because yes. <laughs> we were in elevation was really high and then uh, and then of course great and wonderful Britain mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Manchester and London yeah. so while we were in Manchester we thought okay we gotta do an extra play let's do one uh, from our favorite Mancunian band uh, Slaughter the Dogs <laughs> <laughs> i'm kidding from joy Division, yeah. and um so we tried to but unfortunately it just did a lot of issues and and it's really hard to plug stuff in in europe <laughs> so we're gonna so we decided to wait till we got back here back into our studios in brooklyn but yeah. still let's just pretend welcome from manchester
0: dispatches from manchester <laughs> welcome to no dogs in space ladies and gentlemen i'm marcus Parks.
3: I'm Carolina Hidalgo.
0: And the reason why is because she took one of the... Carolina took one of those gigantic 400 milligram uh, Advil's that they just give you at a fucking pharmacy and it destroyed your stomach.
3: Yeah, it stripped away anything that I needed (laughs) for food Food. or sustenance or whatever. And it was a whole thing. Yeah,
0: and then we went to Macclesfield and they gave us some fries soaked in vinegar and that was even worse.
3: I almost died. (laughs) That was horrible. But I mean... (laughs) but then again I really we shouldn't get too much into it but we did get to check out a lot including Peter Hook himself we did which was fantastic and we'll tell you all about it at the end of the show but we were one of the lucky people that got to see Peter Hook play Live in front of a uh, orchestra, yeah, uh, playing joy division and it, in
0: Manchester oh, itself.
3: so amazing. like it, it got five stars reviews all across the board. Uh, we were happy. we were loving it. We were with the other Mancunians. this is a place to go. yeah, and so that's why we're gonna tell you all about it. and I hope that they you know bring out like a recording or something of it soon and they will.
0: I hope they will. Yeah, but we're gonna tell you that at the end of the show before we get to that. We're going to be giving you a little bit of extra play on our Joy Division series, kind of like we did with our replacement series.
3: Yeah, because, you know, we had to cut some stories from uh, the Joy Division series to make it four parts (laughs) instead of like whatever. And also for pacing. And we wanted, well, there was some that we wanted to include. Yeah. So we figured, why don't we kind of try to retell the story as best we can, including some of our favorite stories about the members of Joy Division during their time in the band. Uh, and as well as like kind of, you know, it would be best if you did listen to the Joy Division series that we produced like uh, about a year ago. But if not, give it your your best. Give it your best. We're going to give you a little bit of a rundown.
4: Yeah,
0: you really don't have to listen to our Joy Division series. I, I'd say this episode actually works as a nice little trailer uh, to see if you want to give it, you know, a shot or not. And this is finally the episode. I finally get to tell the fucking turd story that we had a legitimate fight about when we were putting this series together because Carolina wouldn't didn't want it. She, she was right. She was right. The decision was right. It was a correct editorial decision, but I wanted it. And now I got it.
3: I, I want turds just as much as you. <laughs> It was just the pacing. Sometimes I you know. got to kill some darlings. You know, know. and no, so correct. there are times when we can't add things because it's like it's already too long. Ye- and people are saying, why is everything six, seven parts? And why do we have to wait for months? <laughs> and it's because of this, because we're busy arguing over turns. <laughs> we're going to tell you more about this. Just, you'll see.
0: Yeah, Carolina, just so you know, Carolina is the producer of this show. She's the one who puts this shit together. She's the one that makes sure that these uh, episodes in these series are as good as they fucking can be. That's why it takes a little bit longer. But God damn it, you do a wonderful job. And I want everyone to know that.
3: Oh, thank you so much. I hope it doesn't suck then. <laughs> I hope this doesn't suck.
0: Now, to give a bit of an introduction to put everyone in mind of the Joy Division series... Peter Hook, Joy Division's bassist, and Bernard Sumner, the guitarist, they were childhood friends who'd been inspired by the legendary Sex Pistols gig at Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester. This was the so-called gig that changed the world. This gig is still so famous in Manchester that when we saw Peter Hook play there a couple of weeks ago, I saw a t-shirt at the concert that said, I wish I was there, Lesser Free Trade Hall, June 4th, 1976. And everyone knew what that shirt meant. Yes,
3: yes. It was kind of like a within a mile radius, everyone knows about that show. <laughs> the Sex Pistols played and everyone went nuts. Yeah.
0: This, of course, was the gig that set not only Joy Division on the path to greatness, but also the Smiths, the Fall, the Buzzcocks, and Factory Records, the latter of which eventually revolutionized DJ culture through a Manchester venue called the Hacienda. We also went to a fucking awesome pub in Dublin called the Hacienda. It it was amazing. One of my favorite places I've ever been to in my life. So after seeing the Sex Pistols, Bernard and Peter, colloquially known as Barney and Hookie. Still, do you think I can call them Barney and Hookie yet?
3: I don't know. I can't. I'm not there yet. Yeah. Because also uh, Bernard or Barney, he says like, no one calls me Barney but Peter Hook. (laughs) And we don't even talk to each other. And everyone calls Peter Hook, Hookie.
0: They do. To the fact to the point where we were at the show in Manchester and there were people yelling out like,
3: come on, OK, come on. Yeah, we love you, Hookie. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's up to you. I, I think it should be a personal choice.
0: And we'll see by the end of it. Well, these two guys started learning how to play so they could be in a punk band too. And when the Pistols came back to Manchester a few months later in December of 1976, Bernard and Peter attended with their friend Terry Mason in tow.
3: Yes, Terry Mason, uh, the childhood friend of Peter and Bernard from Salford Grammar School. Uh, what Stephen Morris, uh, how he puts it: every band has someone like Terry, and their importance should not be underestimated. Mm-hmm. So this guy is very important to the secret, the success of Joy Division. Uh, Bernard describes Terry as uh, someone who's not particularly bright nor really good at any one thing. And his jokes were disgusting, but you couldn't help but laugh. And I feel like, We've all had a Terry, at least here at LPN, we've all had a Terry yeah. phase or a Terry day or a Terry five minutes. So, yeah. you know, I appreciate this guy, Terry, as very do I. much so. Yeah, so,
0: we described him in the episode as the Carl Pilkington of Joy Division.
3: Yes. So, <laughs> Terry, he was Joy Division's first lead singer. Yeah. Right? Technically, <laughs> technically. Yeah. But that didn't work out after a couple of disastrous rehearsals, obviously. So then he tried to be the guitarist for Joy Division and then the drummer and then manager and sound technician. And then he failed at all those. Mm-hmm. So he became head roadie, mm-hmm. also known as only roadie. <laughs> that is until 20 and Dave Pills came around, you know, and, and he finally got some help. Yeah. And then later, Terry Mason became the tour manager for the next band, their later band, New Order. But uh, again, so many fuck ups wasn't exactly Brian Epstein.
0: (laughs) He wasn't. It's insane to me that he was the tour manager for New Order when New Order was at their most popular. This is the man who was tasked with sending out demo tapes to record companies across England, and he made copies using a microphone and a record player while Coronation Street played in the background and his mother was yelling at him to come for tea time.
3: Yes. Okay, so that was early in the Joy Division career. <laughs> You're right. This was before New Order. This is very, very early. It, it was. It's more like Terry Mason just didn't think things through. He's not dumb or anything. No, He's a very no. intelligent person. It just The way he thinks is so unique.
0: Yes. Is the best way yes. to say it? He's this. a unique human being. Yeah.
3: Yes. And according to Bernard, Terry was the one who told Bernard and Peter about the Sex Pistols. He's yeah. like, yeah, there's these dudes who wear torn up clothes and spiky hair and they get into a fight at every show. Mm-hmm. We should go.
0: Yeah. Because, you know, the Peter and uh, Bernard, like these are rough and tumble kids from Salford. Like, you know, Salford's a rough fucking part of Manchester. So they're into it, man.
3: Yes. They're like, there's a fight at every show. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. It's something to behold. Yeah. And behold hold it was at the lesser free trade hall That
0: doesn't make sense. Behold, it was?
3: Yeah, I'm just trying to be funny.
0: Oh, (laughs) okay. All right. No. No, And behold, it was. (laughs) It was something to behold. Is this the the Bible? Yes. (laughs) And lo, the Sex Pistols begat Joy Division. Who begat Susie and the Banshees? Who begat Interpol?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, actually. Is someone writing this down? (laughs) Yes, behold, it was at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in June of 1970 of the year of our lord <laughs> Peter, Bernard and Terry they went and they fucking loved it they saw the Sex Pistols two more times the third gig at the Electric Circus that you talked about you know the, the one in December mm-hmm. uh, that was uh, during the Anarchy Tour uh, where the Sex Pistols played with The Clash and The Heartbreakers it Fuck. would have been an awesome show to see and uh, that show actually by that time they'd been talking to a nice but quiet guy wearing a jacket with the words hate written across <laughs> the back of <laughs> the back of his jacket in bright letters. Mm. And that was Ian Curtis. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so according to Peter, that was the night, that show, the December 1976 show at Se- uh, with the Sex Pistols was when the guy said, hey, Ian, do you have a band? Like you were working with another guy named Ian. And Ian Curtis said like, no, that guy's fucked up. Uh, do you want to join our thing? Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. And that's how it went. But according to Peter... He says it a little bit differently. He said that they, they put an ad up in the window of the Virgin Record store in, mm. in Manchester looking for a lead singer and Ian called. Uh, they did put an ad, but either way, you know, they, they were already running into each other at the same shows, Ian and the other guys. They were hanging out in the same scene pretty much. And they all immediately liked each other as soon as they as they started talking. Yeah. So that that was for sure that they had some sort of chemistry together already.
0: Yeah. So after Ian joined the band, they were still known as Warsaw back then, by the way. Like they weren't Joy Division just yet.
3: Oh yeah. They were stiff kittens yeah. for like almost a whole gig. And then yeah. they realized like that's way too lame. That's
0: fucking awful. Yeah. They said it sounded like a cartoon version of a London punk band.
3: Yes. And then <laughs> but then Warsaw, unfortunately, was the name of another London punk band. And so they had to change it to Joy Division.
0: Well, I don't know if they were a punk band. I know because remember Warsaw. That was a whole thing where there was that big p, like that big publicity stunt where there was a band that was going to record, produce, and release an album in one day. Oh yeah, and, <laughs> and they were called Warsaw, or they were called the Warsaw Pact. Uh, so that's when Warsaw changed to Joy Division. But where we are right now in the story, they're still called Warsaw. When Ian Curtis joined the band. They changed the perspective when it came to lyrical content before the songs had all been written by Peter Hook. They were all, you know, they were girls don't like me. What's wrong with girls? That was it's that sort of shit.
3: Yeah, Peter did write that in his book. He's like, I got one called Bleeding L." which is supposed to be bleeding hell about this is about you Belinda (laughs) just wrote it just about about girls nagging him you know what good for
0: them yeah and you know there were some other Manchester punk bands at the time that were having great success with that ever fallen in love by the Buzzcocks is a wonderful song you know among a of that genre but Peter Hook move on and that changed with the entrance of Ian Curtis Ian brought something fresh and cerebral to the group, something far more honest and personal, the sort of lyrics that are so personal that they become universal by the courage of their exposure. Partly, Ian Curtis had these chops because he was from the more middle-class town of Macclesfield, just 40 minutes outside of Manchester, which we went to. Yes. It's quite nice. Yes. 30 than, minutes on a good day. Yeah, 30 minutes on a good day. Yeah. Other than the post-apocalyptic crust punks that were hanging out around the Ian Curtis memorial, beautiful town.
3: Yes. And they they also brought a little bit of a weirdness, but also it was it was a whole thing. Yeah. What a great town though. I really <laughs> liked everything except for the the vinegar.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, since Ian briefly worked at a record store, he could explore more unconventional music, namely artists like Iggy Pop because the other guys in Joy Division, you know, the at least Bernard Sumner and um and Peter Hook, like they were very much working class, like they could hear shit at like the Salford Youth Club, you know, but they weren't able to like, oh, Captain B Fart, let's try that out. They weren't quite at that level.
3: now nah, they were they were big into what it was reggae for a little while, yes, just whatever uh, was coming yeah. around their time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And as it went, when Ian Curtis joined Joy Division. He'd just seen Iggy Pop perform with David Bowie at the same concert hall where we saw Peter Hook just a couple of weeks ago. The show that Ian Curtis saw was Iggy Pop playing his 1977 solo debut, The Idiot, which eventually became Ian Curtis's favorite album. Mm.
4: Calling Sister Midnight. You got me ready. So
3: Okay, so yes, Ian Curtis, he went to see Iggy Pop, uh, Oh, holy shit, during the Idiot Tour. Mm. How amazing is that? March 3rd, 1977, at the Manchester Apollo, as you said, that we were there, we were standing in those seats Mm -hmm. where fucking Iggy Pop was up there. And and David Bowie just playing keyboards just off to the side. Yeah. He's not even doing a whole thing. So Ian Curtis... He's there at that show. Actually, he's there with his wife Debbie because mm-hmm. he he got they got married real young.
0: Yeah, nineteen
3: and twenty. Nineteen, eighteen. Oh
0: God. Yes. Even worse. Okay. I
3: know. I know. And and that actually that's when they saw uh, because by then he had already you know decided like okay maybe I should go with Joy Division Warsaw whatever the fuck we're called <laughs> and uh, he saw Peter and Terry and so he introduced. Uh, Peter and Terry to his wife, Debbie. That was the first time they ever met, actually. Mm-hmm. And so it was at that show, you know, they were all like, hi, hi. And then they go back and stare at Iggy Pop, you know, like banging their heads and everything. Mm-hmm. How people describe that show, especially that tour, was everything. Like electrifying, stimulating, inspiring. It, it was they, they were playing Stooges songs like No Fun and Gimme Danger and I Want to Be Your Dog.
0: It's one of the time. It's a time travel show there, yes. like time capsule.
3: And the audience, they all stood up on their chairs and they moved to the music because the bouncers couldn't tell everyone to sit down. So they all had to stand there and they were just flailing their arms out. They were just singing along. They were loving every moment of this. But Debbie noticed that throughout the whole show, Ian was just standing there completely still. Yeah. Not even on his chair. He was just, just watching. He was just taking it all in. He was just...
0: Yeah, transfixed.
3: Exactly, just like Alan Vega from Suicide, just like pretty much almost everybody. Just Patty Smith. They all stare at Iggy Pop, and like I I want to do that.
0: Yeah, and going even back, Iggy Pop watching Jim Morrison. Like it's uh, like it's this. It goes back again and and again.
3: One who begat another.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, like many of the bands we covered in our season on punk, Joy Division, then still called Warsaw, they were having a hard time retaining a drummer. The first drummer had been a bust, and the second ill advisedly left to join a group called The Panic that went nowhere. But it could be argued that Joy Division would have never become the revolutionary band it became had they used any other drummer besides drummer number three, Stephen Morris, heard here playing my favorite drum beat ever. That's cool. It's the best. Yes. I I will say when we saw No Order, they did play Transmission. And just hear, not even hearing like Bernard Sumner and all them playing it, hearing Stephen Morris play that drum beat live and still being able to play it in his 60s exactly with the same amount of energy that he played it when he was fucking 22. Wow. One of my favorite it was one of my favorite live show experiences that I've ever had in my life. It was uh, it was incredible.
3: Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, you yeah. were the,
0: well, you were there.
3: I was there. Yeah, no, it, it was also incredible. It was yeah. great. I mean, I, I can't keep time, so but I I do appreciate people who do. And Stephen Morse well, one of them who can, he answered an ad that uh, Joy Division Nord Warsaw placed at a music store in Macclesfield. You see, Stephen Morris was from the same town that Ian Curtis was from. So that actually made it a lot easier. It's like, oh, we're just down the street from each other. This is so much better. So Stephen Morris, he called Ian and he's like, hey, I'm here about the ad. And Ian's like, okay, great. Why don't you pop around tea time, which is half past six? Which mm-hmm. I don't know what time that is.
0: Actually, I think it's half six.
3: Half six.
0: Yeah, which is five thirty.
3: Okay, so just come to my house at five thirty. That's <laughs> what I would say uh, to to Ian's house uh, to get a tape of their songs for Stephen to listen to. You know, because he he needs to learn them a little bit. And so Stephen goes to Ian Curtis's house on Barton Street, and his description of Ian Curtis was. He has blue eyes and a haircut like Augustus Caesar. <laughs> like this guy is photogenic. Yeah. This guy is a, a front man in every way.
0: He's got the look, definitely. Yes. And, yeah, and seeing that uh, mural in Macclesfield of Ian Curtis is, I mean, it's, you really do see how photogenic this dude truly is.
3: Yes, but also very quiet and mm-hmm. reserved and very polite at times. It, it, it just seems a little bit jarring because we're going about to get into why. Yeah. Right. So Stephen Morris and Ian Curtis, they spent a few hours talking and and then Stephen leaves with the tape of, of Warsaw's music and, and he's like, OK, I'll listen to this and uh, and then we'll set up a rehearsal. So it kind of seemed like a done deal, like he was in the band already, mm-hmm. probably because Stephen Morris was the only person to answer that ad. <laughs> the first, the last, the only. So, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That the, the fate, right? Yeah. So Stephen, he listened to the tape a bunch of times over the next few days and thought, OK, you know, I've heard worse. Mm-hmm. At least they're playing their own songs. It's a bit what he called like punky by numbers because it was very different from uh transmission from what we heard.
0: Oh, very much so. And also these guys are only playing they've only been playing their instruments for like a year, maybe at most. At most yeah. Yes,
3: yes. Bernard maybe a little bit more, but the rest of them kind of just started picking it up. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, it's a punk band, you know, and it's it's a rock band. At least it's not a folk band. That's what (laughs) Stephen Moore said. So the following week, Stephen gets a call to rehearse in Manchester on Saturday at noon. Uh, Just got to make sure to pick up Ian at 1130. And then then off they go to Strange Ways Prison to meet up with the other guys, (laughs) Peter and Bernard. (laughs) That's what they said. Uh huh. Strange Ways is a prison in that town. Apparently. It is. Yes. Well, I
0: mean, I could see that uh, because the first live show, uh, last podcast ever did in Manchester was outside the walls of Strange Ways prison. So you know, the town fully exists, like right outside of the, and it's scary as hell. It's not a good neighborhood.
3: Yes, and Stephen is like thinking, like, what am I getting myself into? I don't <laughs> even know these people. I, I answered that, yeah. but then you know, Peter and Bernard they show up. And Stephen does remember seeing Peter showing up with a beard, which is very strange for punk bands. Mm -hmm. You know, he his first thought was like, oh, that must be Peter's uncle or dad or something. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? Peter did counter by saying when he first met Stephen Morris, his uh, view of him was that, why is this guy dressed like a geography teacher (laughs) right down to the patches on the elbow on his jacket and everything? So these guys are just random dudes just coming together. And I love how this ends up working out. Right. Yeah. So at their first rehearsal together, the guys immediately know Stephen Morris was their drummer. Like he had all the power they were looking for. But with this texture that they haven't heard before, which Stephen calls frantic Thrashing,
0: <laughs> yeah, frantic thrashing. It's true, but Stephen Morris also he brought in this different kind of uh influence because, like, as we talked about in our series, you know, like Stephen Morris brought in like influences like Hawkwind, you know, yes. which is some like bringing shit from like completely different from sideways, you know, which you listen to Masters of the Universe, it sounds a fucking shit ton like Joy Division
3: perfect this seems to balance the whole group out perfectly I love this yeah. and then a couple of days later Stephen Morris plays his first gig with warsaw slash joy division on August 27 1977 in Liverpool at a this legendary venue called Eric's and uh it was that afternoon because they did the matinee show that afternoon <laughs> they opened for x-ray Specs.
0: me some polystyrene. Yes. If we ever do another season on Punk, we'll do a thing on X-Ray Specs. Yes. Fascinating story.
3: Hell, we'll do it next month if we
1: can. <laughs> I would love to do that.
0: Yeah, I think of the future, we might just do whatever the fuck we want, whenever the fuck we want. So we'll see.
1: Yeah, I think it's getting to that point now. <laughs> can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw
3: so Stephen Morris, he describes his first gig with the band as like the most exhilarating thing he'd ever done, which is always the best thing when you go on stage for the first time and you do well. It's like, oh, it's so awesome. So, But he did notice something about Ian Curtis, like his new frontman. He's like, well, OK, during rehearsals, Ian was usually very reserved, you know, quiet, sitting down, mumbling while they played. You, know, I guess he was trying to figure out the words, yeah. figuring out how the songs would, would be shaped. The exp- <laughs> How the songs would shape, how the songs would shape. Sorry. No, 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 no. Keep that in. Keep that in. I'm keeping it in. All right. This is an extra play. We don't do second drafts here, okay? (laughs) But on stage, Ian Curtis was something. He was so much more. He was. He was animated. He was lively. He was almost dangerous.
0: Captivating. One of the most captivating frontmen of the decade.
3: Absolutely. Very surprising to see, especially to Stephen Morris. (laughs) And they were like, what the hell is going on? So anyway, their next gig was at this place called Rafters which is booked by Martin Hannett. He booked Joy Division to headline that show at Rafters, but he also booked a local band called Fast Breeder and told them that they were headlining at Rafters too. <laughs> so naturally a fight ensued between the two bands. We're headlining, no, we're headlining. So Terry, the de facto band manager said, okay, I'll talk to the promoter here and sort it all out. Terry leaves and comes back and says, we figured it out. Joy Division's going on first. <laughs> what? what No, 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 fucking, no. Fucking no, no, no. Jesus fucking Christ, Terry, every
0: goddamn time.
3: The hell we are <laughs> is exactly what they were saying. We're headlining and that's that because you know Ian's super pissed off. He was getting in the guy's face and everything, telling mm. him to fuck off because when it came to the band, Ian was m- very protective about it.
0: Yeah, the band, his music, everything. Passionate is the word that could be described.
3: Absolutely. So, you know, he could get set off really easily, especially over this fight of who's headlining. And remember, Steven is really new to the band at the time. He's just standing there like, how can you get in an argument over a dingy basement venue playing at a, a show on a Tuesday night? There's literally only five people here. You'd think this was like the Hollywood Bowl or something or, or Wembley Stadium. What the fuck is wrong with you kids?
0: It's rafters.
3: So Peter Hook said, OK, you know what? I'm going to go call Martin Hand and myself. And I'm going to settle this whole shit show. So Peter gets to a phone and calls Martin, who's smoking something because Martin stoned as fuck. Weed. And Martin says, you know what, Peter? It really makes no difference. So Peter hangs up and turns to everyone and says, right, Martin's just confirmed. We're headlining. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? What? Ah! So eventually... Joy Division got their way. Mm -hmm. They got to go on last, which also means headlining. (laughs) But they couldn't go on because the other band left their gear on stage after sound check and left the venue for several hours.
0: Fucking just fucked off somewhere else in Manchester.
3: Fast Breeder didn't come back until like around 1130 p.m. Then they went on and then they played. And by the time Joy Division played, most of the audience had gone home.
0: Oh, most of the audience had gone home four out of seven people had gone home.
3: There were just literally a couple people there (laughs) at 1 a.m. But, man, they they fought for it and they got it. They headlined in front of you and you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, by the time Joy Division took the stage, the other members were certainly pissed about the runaround, but Ian Curtis had responded by drinking steadily throughout the night until it was time for his band to take the stage. And so, being both drunk and angry... Ian Curtis used that intoxicated frustration. Two or three songs into the set, Curtis jumped off the stage. Or as Stephen Morris put it in his book, Ian Curtis hopped off the slightly raised platform. Yes, he's mad! (laughs) Once Ian Curtis was on the level of the crowd, he started accosting the few people still there at 1 a.m. on a Tuesday, flipping over tables and breaking a fair amount of pint glasses in the process. Then... Taking a cue from Iggy Pop's most infamous onstage moments fronting the Stooges, Ian threw himself to the floor and writhed around in the broken glass, cutting himself to shreds while the rest of Joy Division played on, bewildered at the spectacle.
3: Yeah, they, they said it was mesmerizing. Yeah. N- not the band. uh was one of the photographers that was there. He said it always felt dangerous because you always felt like Ian was slightly out of control. Like the only person he ever saw on stage to be that dangerous too. Was Iggy Pop.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, by drummer Stephen Morris's recollection, Ian's actions at that gig were brilliant and cathartic, an us against the world statement for the ages. But to the more working class Peter Hook, the show was, quote, one of our worst gigs ever. But no matter their personal opinions, Ian Curtis had taken a huge risk and had put on a show unlike any other band in Manchester at the time. And while no casual audience member came away from it all that impressed, the house DJ at Rafters, a guy named Rob Gretton, recognized that he was seeing something special.
3: Oh, he's there. I knew he'd make it.
0: (laughs) Now, as we said in our series, Joy Division would not exist without Rob Gretton. Soon after seeing them, Gretton became Joy Division's manager. And had he not stepped in, Joy Division would have been remembered as Warsaw, a Manchester also ran with a shitty sounding EP that had an illustration of a Hitler youth playing a drum on the cover.
3: They didn't mean to make it all like you know, fascist and stuff. Bernard Sumner he thought it would, was just an interesting, powerful image. And then later he regretted it for the he, rest of his life.
0: He regretted it. And also we were looking at Joy Division tattoos the other day. And I don't know if all those people with an ideal for living tattoo with the Nazi, I don't think they know that's a Hitler drummer boy.
3: You got to do your research. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: instead, Rob Gretton whipped Joy Division into shape and made sure that that EP, An Ideal for Living, was re-released without the Nazi cover on a proper 12-inch record that fixed the sound issue.
3: Oh, yeah. They had terrible sound problems because they tried to put it all in a Mm 7-inch and it just didn't work at all.
0: You had to turn up your stereo all the way to hear it at all. It was a fucking disaster. They, God, they needed a manager. Mm -hmm. But the most enduring track off of that EP, of course, is the one named after the band's original moniker. Warsaw.
4: 350125 oh, I was there in the backstage. like around. when the first time around, I could see all the windows. I could pick all the faults. But I can see all the
2: P1G, P1G, P1G.
4: Puck around in your soundtrack. The mirror all that you've done.
0: Now, that song is very Manchester. It's yeah, got, it's got such a Manchester feel to it. It's the mo- I think it's the most like Manchester sounding song the Joy Division ever fucking wrote. Now, not many people heard Warsaw back in the seventies because even the re-release for an Ideal for Living had a very low print run. Most people heard that song for the first time ten years later in nineteen eighty-eight when a compilation called Substance, collecting Joy Division singles, was released by Factory Records. Now, Substance was my first Joy Division album. I bought the cassette at Ralph's Records in Lubbock, and it's what made me fall in love with Joy Division. If I fucking put it in my car, like in a little boombox I carried around in my car, and just played it over and over and over again. Loved it. But even though it's a compilation, it's not necessarily a greatest hits. And I thought it was a greatest hits album forever, until I actually started buying Joy Division albums. Because while it is a collection of singles, it includes Transmission, Dead Souls, Atmosphere, Digital, Love Will Tears Apart, the fucking best known Joy Division songs. None of those songs were actually on any Joy Division albums.
3: They're such geniuses at (laughs) at marketing, aren't they?
0: And since these singles also had low print runs, besides Love Will Tears Apart, of course, and those print runs were also vinyl runs at that, most fans, most people didn't hear Transmission or Digital or Atmosphere until the re-release in 1988. But back in the late 70s, Joy Division fans in the UK mostly heard these songs through London DJ John Peel, who knew these singles had stupidly low print runs. So to help spread Joy Division's music, he would warn his listeners in advance that he was about to play Atmosphere or Dead Souls so they could get their tape players ready. See, John Peel was already a champion of Joy Division before even the first album. He'd been the man to first bring the band to the London airwaves in 1979 before the release of Joy Division's debut, Unknown Pleasures, when he invited Joy Division to participate in one of his famous Peel sessions. Isn't
3: that crazy? That's so nuts. Like, okay, so even before. Joy Division's first album even came out before they were even signed to a record label. The, John Peel started playing their music because that was John Peel. Like he liked, like you said, he liked to champion like these bands, the uh, the local bands particularly, and and the unsigned, the unknown. As long as he digs their stuff, that's it. We're gonna put it on, and he really dug Joy Division's EP. He even played two songs from it. Um, failures and uh, no love lost.
0: Mm-hmm. So Steve- no love lost, which a lot of people say is the song that predicts joy divisions, future sound.
3: Gosh,
0: <laughs> <you> believe that. <laughs> yeah.
3: And there's a whole thing. It came out this summer of 2022 where Stephen Morris actually sent uh John Peel a letter mm-hmm. with a copy of the EP and And it's it's a really sad, funny, sad letter of him just being like, sorry, it sounds so shitty. You know, we didn't. And we also don't have a sleeve for it. Uh, They haven't come. The sleeves haven't come back from the printers yet. Yeah. Um, And the label Enigma. uh, Ignore that. Ignore that. Uh, Just found out Enigma was uh, is an actual classical, you know, record uh, music record uh, label. Uh, We were trying to be cool. Anyway, that's all misleading. Uh, Anyway, we're a band. Please play our music. And that like that letter was actually auctioned off.
4: Wow. Like
3: this year. I mean, if you want me to see how much it was for with the. Uh, well, actually, it came with the uh, the EP and Ideal oh. for a Living. Uh, was it 9,562 pounds? Woo! That's cr- Quite a
0: <laughs> that is some memorabilia right there. Jesus.
3: Right, right. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So John Peel played the, uh, you know two songs from their EP, and Peter Hook he actually does remember sitting in his car freezing his ass off while waiting for their song to come on with the intro by John Peel, so he could tape it. You know, mm. he says he even he still has that tape to his day because. Having John Peel talk about your band is something else. Yeah,
0: it's like a stamp of approval from God in 1979. <laughs> One of their
3: favorite uh, radio DJs of all time. Yeah. Yes. And then in January of 1979, and this was, uh, you know, they, they were well off, you know, touring and everything. They had Rob Gretton. Uh, and, and also, the, unfortunately, this was just a week before Ian Curtis was diagnosed with epilepsy yeah. after having a grand mal seizure. Uh, on yeah. the way back from a show. Uh the band was offered a chance to play a peel session, which which is where you know the band goes into a studio and they play four of their songs live on the BBC Radio One show. Yeah. So this was a it was a tough one. It's like, are we sure Ian can do this? You know, but you know what? Ian insisted because he's like, I want I this is amazing. Being on a peel session, like going in to the studios there and recording them oh, I know we talked about it with the slits the slits got to do it um john kale the damned uh, the fall uh, and even later like blur sonic youth bikini kill just just to name a few
0: yeah that's just a bear, very very few yeah
3: i've done a peel session or two <laughs>
0: One of my, my favorite Peel session is Lightning Bolt. It's incredible. Uh, it's like 2003 to that. 2000, hey, there's a George Bush joke. Let's just say that much. Okay. It's, it's, it's that era. George W. Bush joke.
3: Oh, gosh. Yeah. OK. So Joy Division, they they went in, they record their thing. Peter Hook called the whole experience mind blowing. Yeah. Um, And even though the band were they were just starting to see the cracks in the walls, you know, with Ian's health. And, and his mental problems, uh, they were still going full force. Yeah. And as I said, with Ian insisting on this and uh, but one of the songs that they did play during the Peel sessions, which I love that Peter calls it his favorite uh, Joy Division song because just of how simple and how powerful it is. It doesn't even have a chorus it doesn't. because it doesn't need one. But that's not all. Peter said it just that's the moment when they wrote this song. It perfectly captures the sound of a group of people. Young guys who are just working out the possibilities of what they can do and working them together in a time when writing music was easy, but most of all just plain old fun. Yeah.
0: This is insight from the PL sessions.
4: Yes, your dreams always end. They don't rise up just to say.
3: And he's all on YouTube, by the way.
0: Yeah. Now, by listening to Insight, Joy Division's output could be seen as very working class Manchester. Gray, concrete, always on the verge of rain, somewhat anxious, European, always feeling like it's that uneasy in-between time of early afternoon when it's not quite lunch, but not quite dinner either. I believe British sci-fi writer Douglas Adams may have put it best by calling it the long, dark tea time of the soul. He might as well have been describing Joy Division when he named that fucking book. But that wasn't really who the boys of Joy Division were as people. And as Peter Hook pointed out in his book, there was a side to lead singer Ian Curtis that most people didn't know. And the deification of Ian Curtis suggested a division between him and the rest of the band that wasn't really there. For example, Ian Curtis was in full lockstep with the group during an incident that occurred at an absolutely disastrous event called the Lee Festival that had a killer fucking lineup but only drew at most 30 people.
3: Yeah, I think uh, who was it Peter Saville who uh, was supposed to do the posters? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they got there on time. No, we they don't didn't.
0: know. No, cuz remember the first factory record show Peter Saville showed up to the gig with the posters for the gig. Yes,
3: got them done. Just in time for you guys. How's this? How's this? Oh, this is great. This will be a great memorabilia uh, thing yeah. later, which it yeah. turned out to be.
0: Yeah, there's actually that great scene in 24-Hour Party People, the movie, where that, like, and it seems like a joke, but that actually fucking happened. <laughs> now, what sounds like an 80s goth kid's dream gig Joy Division played with Echo and the Bunny Men and orchestral maneuvers in the dark, among others. You also, I mean, even fucking a certain ratio played. You had a good dancey punk funk set. Yeah. But as Peter Hook put it, the gig was horribly put together, as most things put together by Factory Records was. The weather was cold and rainy, and the highlight was a 40 inch turd that Terry found in the tent toilet.
3: Let me find out how many centimeters that is. <laughs> Uh wow, that's a <laughs> cre- hundred and one centimeters. <laughs> one
0: hundred and one. Now, concerning that turd and Ian Curtis, Ian was not in a very good place in his personal life following the release of Unknown Pleasures.
3: Yeah, that's the first album.
0: Yeah, see, Ian, as we said, he'd gotten married to a woman named Debbie at the age of nineteen, long before he became lead singer of Joy Division. He was still in civil service at that time. <laughs> And he was starting to realize that maybe he jumped into the Macclesfield life just a little too quickly, which sunk in especially deep after the birth of his daughter, Natalie. In addition, the epilepsy that was destroying Ian Curtis's dreams of rock and roll stardom that was only getting worse. But according to his wife, Debbie, who attended the festival... Ian Curtis was far more interested in talking about the size of the turd that Terry had found, because that's all anyone in Joy Division wanted to talk about that day.
3: I Yes, I love that. Like, it's basically Debbie, she's just postpartum at this point. <laughs> she finally gets to a show, finally, and, it, and there's no one there and is miserable and she's like, hey, it took me all day to get here. And Ian's like, not now, not now, there's a turd over there. He's <laughs> like, okay, well, Natalie, our baby, our baby girl right now is going yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it. So, Terry, you telling me it looks like Swiss rolls?
0: <laughs> Swiss oh my God, it's fucking, it's a huge ball. Hey, Debbie, how you doing? Just don't oh, fucking come on. It's so gross, come on. We should put the baby next to it and see which <laughs> one's bigger. Where's the baby,
3: Debbie? Oh, his grandparents.
0: But that's not to say that Ian Curtis wasn't also regularly embarrassed by the antics of his peers. Case in point was Eel Fuckers of Amsterdam.
3: I've Googled it. I Googled it. I don't know. I can't find
0: it. <laughs> we Googled it in English. We Googled it in its native Dutch. We found nothing. Now, this whole story revolves around Terry Mason. And concerning Terry Mason, no one could argue that his heart was always in the right place. But his disconnect between good intentions and common sense often created problems for the ban that adopted this wayward stray of a person.
3: Right. Remember, I said he thinks differently. Yes, he does. So what was happening is okay. so it starts with Bernard, right? Because he tells it in his in his book. Bernard was just walking over to the regular rehearsal space in Salford when he noticed a group of huge, burly looking men standing in line pretty much out the door, you know, leading to the band's rehearsal room, which, of course, confused the shit out of (laughs) Bernard, especially when the biggest, scariest looking guy out of the group walked up to Bernard and asked, Is this where the band Joy Division rehearses?
0: (laughs) Excuse me, mate. Is this where Joy Division rehearses?
3: And Bernard's like, how do I answer that? (laughs) I don't know if one of us pissed somebody off and now they're all looking for Joy Division to kick our asses. I don't know. But actually, it was much simpler than that. It was. Actually, it turned out it was all Terry's fault. (laughs) (laughs) Terry and Margaret... Thatcher's apparently. Uh, Margaret
0: Thatcher (laughs) being the prime minister. Well, Margaret Thatcher being just elected prime minister in 1979.
3: Yes, she was just elected. She wasn't
0: quite in office yet. No, but but the writing was on the wall.
3: Yes. But then this is this happened in 1980. So she got in. Ah, She's in and she's already enacting all her uh, policies of austerity, you know, and and all her budgetary uh, concerns that she had, Mm -hmm. which, uh, you know. Well, I don't know
4: if the poor truly need to eat.
3: It was, it was not exactly like that, but <laughs> let, let's just say that there's a lot of things to say about Margaret Thatcher. I feel like I have a good idea, but I'm not well-versed enough in politics. I just She's know- She's bad. Exactly. She's ba-
0: If you know that Ronald Reagan's bad, you know that Margaret Thatcher's bad. It's the same type of shit.
3: Absolutely. But it also, I, I agree with you, but it also goes very deep, especially with the unions, right? Yeah. Particularly the mining unions, where she was at odds with the first year she was prime minister, uh, which unfortunately, you know, Thatcher didn't back down. No. And she won from that, which led to a lot of problems. Anyways, you see, okay, so these big, scary guys, right? They were union miners on strike from the H. Croft Colliery, which is a a mine right there in Manchester. And Terry's cousin was one of them. So to cheer up these big, burly miners, Terry decided to arrange a cultural occasion (laughs) of a cinematic feature, a porn movie. They were showing. A porn movie. <laughs> so Bernard walks past his line into the rehearsal room and sees Terry setting up chairs and rows and everything. When he looks up and sees Bernard and goes, oh, fuck, I got the dates mixed up. I forgot you guys were rehearsing tonight kind of thing. <laughs> Bernard's like, yeah, it's obvious you didn't know that we were coming in. <laughs> and you know what? Bernard was even a little bit pissed. He's just like, I'm not crossing that union line.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm not scabbing a porno show.
3: No, put on the movie. Put on the movie. This is what we're doing in dead. So Terry sets up the projector uh, with the film with the porno film in it, but he couldn't get it to work. But luckily, Stephen Morris was walking in, you know, he's like, hey, what's going on? Well, I thought there was rehearsal, you know, and everything. And they're like, no, 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 no. But this is what we're doing instead. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I can't stress enough how huge and scary these guys are. They're, they're gigantic. These are miners. Yeah. These are people who are going in the, the fucking hell of the earth to come on out and make some money just you, for their family, just to feed themselves. I'll
0: tell you, Manchester is full of huge, scary men working industrial jobs.
3: Still. Do you know what afterdamp is? (laughs) It's when a mixture of unbreathable gases like nitrogen mixed with carbon dioxide leads to asphyxiation minutes right after an underground mine explosion. I've seen 10 men go down that way. But I've never seen eel fuckers of Amsterdam, (laughs) which is why we're here.
0: (laughs) Eel fuckers, eel fuckers, eel.
3: I don't even know what that means. Marcus and I were trying to figure it out the other day. You think I I was horrified thinking that there might be actual eels. Yeah. uh, And then you thought that maybe their penises are so giant and long. Yes,
0: I I thought that the penises were eel-like. Yes. In stature and... Length.
3: I don't. Yeah, exactly. We're not quite sure. I know there's lots of canals in Amsterdam, but I don't know about their eel population. Yeah, canals.
0: Fuck yeah.
3: So they finally got the movie Roll It, right? Everyone's just sitting there, just watching the "Ah, ah, who knows? Who knows what eel's noises make? So remember, there's one more member left, though. Yep. There's Ian Curtis, and he doesn't know that this is what we're doing instead. (laughs) So pretty soon, everyone in the room hears voices in the hall, and it's Ian with a French journalist who had flown in from Paris specifically oh. to interview Ian Curtis. Mm-hmm. And Ian's in, in the hallway talking to this journalist, you know, throwing names like Dostoevsky, Nietzsche, uh, Simone de Beauvoir. Mm-hmm. when he opens the door to the rehearsal room, just like, here, this is where we did, da. And then suddenly a room full of striking miners all just turn around (laughs) and stare at them and then back to the screen where it continues with the eel fuckers in Amsterdam. So Ian goes over to Bernard and he says, like, what's going on? And Bernard says, oh, not much. Uh, These are miners on strike and Terry's putting on a porn movie for them. It's all fine and good. Uh, To which Ian had to turn to the French journalist and say, it's not normally like this. (laughs) And according to Bernard, the porn... The Eel Fuckers of Amsterdam was, as you can imagine, utterly disgusting.
0: I think he said it was one of the vilest things he'd ever seen in his life. It was fucking (laughs) god awful. I've been Googling it for weeks. (laughs) Can't find it. Can't find it. It's just such a... It's amazing because this is after Unknown Pleasures. Like, this is after the release of, like, one of the most serious albums of the latter half of the 70s to be released. It's the one with Disorder and New Dawn Fades. You know, it's... She's lost control.
3: What's one less rehearsal, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, soon after Ian Curtis's moment of mortification, not his only one, there's actually more. We talk about him in our series... The band went back into the studio to record their second and last album, Closer.
3: You're right. There is like no way this music could have been made anywhere else at any other point in time. And Margaret Thatcher and everything else, <laughs> Sex Pistols, Martin yeah. Han and Rob Gretton, this is all like it all came together.
0: It all did. Honestly, the way, the way things do. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems.
3: So, yeah, they did record uh, Closer, their second album, Uh, the band Joy Division. They went to London to record it in uh, Britannia Row Studios, built and owned by Pink Floyd. Yeah. Yeah, that's where they recorded parts of the wall and animals. And I'm the only person that cares. (laughs) I know. I know some of the band members of Pink Floyd suck. I know that. Uh, And this album, Closer, was produced by Martin Mm Hannett. Of course, he'd stop booking gigs Mm -hmm. and realizing like, no, this is what I got to do. And the whole recording experience was while they were actually working on it, you know, they, they were working as a team. It was a very positive experience. Yeah. And sometimes during their downtime... Ian and Bernard would go through like the re- front reception desk and like they would prank call people because they would, you know, they'd find that Rolodex, which is like a big thing of famous names and numbers. Everyone
0: knows what a Rolodex is.
3: I are you sure? <laughs> it's just this thing that just got names and numbers. It's like a, it's like a, what's it called? A directory. Yeah. Directory, right. yeah. right. So when one of them, did you not know what a Rolodex was? I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> So <laughs> you just have to look it up. And So yes, it, it's got a whole it's a it's a whole thing before yeah. everything got digital, right? So anyway, uh, they would prank call people at four. You didn't a. know what a
0: rolodex was. No,
3: all right, all right. I didn't know. That's fine. There's nothing right. wrong with, sure. with, with with you know you you don't have to shame stupid me.
0: Um, <laughs> I'm not shaming. I'm just baffled. <laughs> <laughs>
3: They, they don't ex- they haven't existed for like 30 years. Well, they existed in
0: your lifetime.
3: Yes. And I wasn't doing this. I wasn't I wasn't working front reception desk at, at Britannia Rose Studios. Okay, all right. Which apparently the, the one and only that, uh, that ever existed there. You yeah. check it out. Uh, so, yes. They prank called people, including one of them was actually John Peel mm-hmm. themselves. You know, their musical DJ hero. You're calling him at 4 a.m. and saying, God knows what. And yeah. John Peel telling them to go fuck off in bed. Almost like it's like a, one of those, uh, what's that called?
0: Christmas Carol. Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. Like it's like, <laughs> who are these three assholes calling me? I don't have three, I, I have three assholes, okay? Not three ghosts of Christmas past. I have three assholes. So, anyway, this is around March of 1980. Uh, when, you know, when Joy Division, they were in the studio working on that on that album, Closer. Mm-hmm. And which is really sad to think about, that that was about two months from Ian Curtis's death.
0: Yeah. Now, recording their second album and being on John Peel's show, not once, but twice, because they did two Peel sessions, these were big moments for Joy Division. And there were even bigger moments to come. Specifically, the bigger moment was when their first single, after the release of Closer, hit the British charts. But as Peter Hook recalled, When he heard the announcement on the radio that the new single had topped off at number 13, he turned off the station before the song even played. He no longer really cared, because by that point, Ian Curtis was dead. He died by suicide just before the release of Closer and just before the release of that aforementioned single, the one that the band will undoubtedly be remembered for above all else. That song was Love Will Tear Us Apart. After Ian Curtis's death, the remaining members of Joy Division were ready to move on to something else as fast as they could, partly to deal with the numbness, and partly because this was, after all, their job. And just as a factory worker has to get other work when their factory shuts down, Peter, Bernard, and Steven found a new direction. They dropped the name Joy Division and became New Order.
3: They played this. They played this song, right? When God, we saw them at Madison
0: Square Garden. God damn right. They played it. I think it was the second or third song Uh when we saw New Order play Madison Square Garden like, you know, three or four weeks ago. The whole, like, new... What is it? Pet New Shop Order Boys?
3: Pet Shop Boys and New Order. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was very confusing. Yeah, the, but the shirts are confusing. The
0: shirts are very confusing. Yeah, we didn't stay for Pet Shop Boys We just because we were, you know, preparing for our uh, trip to the UK. But New Order, they were fucking great. It was a hell of a performance. You know, they played, we cried during Temptation. We danced during Blue Monday. You know, Age of Consent was fantastic. And of course, they closed with Transmission, as we said earlier. And, you know, a version of Love Will Tear Us Apart that was pretty good.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was all right. It It was was, a
0: nice tribute. It was a very nice tribute. But, you know, as we... Saw New Order and thought it was great when we went and saw Peter Hook. OK, so Peter Hook. <laughs> it sort of made us change how we thought about the New Order show.
3: Well, Peter Hook. Uh, well, he did the show, right? We we bought tickets to the show because we knew we we're going to be in Manchester. And it said Peter Hook presents the sound of Joy Division orchestrated at the Apollo. Mm -hmm. And so we're like, Peter Hook presents. Is this one of those things where he just shows up in the beginning Mm -hmm. and it shows up at the end? And these are just (laughs) like renditions of like the popular songs of Joy Division. Like, what are we going to what are we in store for? Yeah. And we had no fucking clue.
0: My God. It was an experience. Top three concert experiences of my life, ever, easily,
3: ever. I think it's easily. probably my favorite show ever. So we go there, Peter Hook. He remember we're in Manchester. Yes, we're in their town. We're where they were from. Like yeah. even like in the beginning, who who was it? Um, Kelvin Briggs, the guy who was a childhood friend of Ian Curtis, mm-hmm. who was his best man to Ian Curtis's uh, wedding to to Debbie. Uh, he was there and he like kind of gave a little speech in the beginning and he, he played the um the wind chimes too when they did the song.
0: Well, they opened with Atmosphere, yes. which I thought was incredibly brave because I thought that Atmosphere was going to be the closer because that's such a heartfelt song. But no, they fucking opened with Atmosphere and we're sitting there watching Ian, the best man at Ian Curtis's wedding play the chimes that were actually used on the recording of Atmosphere. I felt like I was staring at the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Like looking at no, this is
3: giants. all historical artifacts.
0: <laughs> historical artifact playing historical artifact. Uh, the show itself was so incredible, so passionate, uh, so well put together. It was very well thought out from beginning to end. There were three guest vocalists. Uh, and, and in addition to Peter Hook singing... Quite a few Jordan division songs himself and honestly fucking nailing every single one. he
3: was fantastic. He was like I, I, I remember thinking like this guy's like a bull <laughs> like he he was just he had it. He had everything the passion and the the love, the care, every detail like it was all obviously very well thought out, very well put together. Beautifully orchestrated in every way and and just sonically. And it was so wonderful. I can't believe that we were there. I can't believe we were lucky enough to be there.
0: I know. And the the singers, they, they like I said, they had three come on. Uh, the first was a guy named Bastion Marshall. He's in a band called The Detachments uh, that are very gothy, very much recommended. They're fucking great. I, cool, I checked yeah. out some of their stuff. But he came on looking exactly like Ian Curtis yes like he had had that Caesar haircut that you mentioned he had the stance and most importantly he had the voice I mean he came on and they actually uh, right after atmosphere he came on and sang this slowed down version of Love Will Tear Us Apart just to kind of get it like get it out of everyone's heads yep let's do a slowed down version and do a little bit of a fake out just a yeah. little bit of a fake. I was like, so okay, cool. okay, well, I guess that's good. You know, we'll listen to all the rest of them. Uh, and he came out, he did that. He did Isolation. Uh, I think he did Digital as well. Yes. Um, but the other singer that, two other singers, they had two uh, woman singers. Uh, but I mean, one of her name was uh, Micah Miller. She was great. She had she a was
3: fantastic voice. She wow. had a
0: classical, she had like a classical voice, like kind of, I almost put like as a Twin Peaksy type mm-hmm. voice. But the, the woman who just fucking, my God, if she keeps singing, she's going to be a gigantic star. Her name is Nancy Dynan. She's 17. Yeah. Uh, and she got on the show because she sent Peter Hook her a version of her singing Transmission. Uh, this slowed down, beautiful version of Transmission, which she ended up doing on the show. She ended up singing like four or five songs. But she was incredible.
3: She did. She's Lost Control, which was my favorite song that she did on that, which is amazing. Yeah. No, this woman was like and I love the fact that they had such a young voice singing these words. Yeah. It really does make sense because Joy Division were a very young band. They were. They were like 21, 22 when this whole thing was going down. So I I just that's what made it perfect. That's what made it all possible. It's like we need to hear voices younger voices. Uh, Peter Hook's voice was perfect though when, when it was allowed to be but also like to have a younger person in there to kind of interpret it in, in a new way was uh, subliminal. It was amazing.
0: <laughs> Sublime. Subliminal would be if we just barely didn't hear Don't it, stupid
3: th- shame me.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you right. You
3: asked me you're to right. do this. You right.
0: asked me.
4: I
3: know. I I just, I currently <laughs> opened up my book called Other Words That Don't Say Awesome <laughs> And I'm trying to come up with something. I get it, I get you know, it. the name of my memoir is going to be called like "What's Another Word for Loud?" <laughs> because it, yes, it's fantastic, it's magnificent, it's yeah. it, it's everything you want it to be. I yeah. it, there's no words because why would people describe music? It you know just through words, it's stupid. Yeah,
0: it's stupid. It's dumb. Why it, would
3: we do this? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, personally, my fa- I mean, Speaking of the voices, though, my favorite song of the night was Peter Hook singing "Disorder." Uh, I I hope that this is released eventually because I, God, I, I have such an urge to hear that version again. But once this show started going on and on, and, you know, and we're all sitting down for most of the show, except for the one man who decided to stand up and dance his way to the front of the stage, dancing like fucking Bob from Shits Creek. Yeah, yeah. And starts yeah. dancing in front of Peter Hook. And the usher has to come and like push him back. Just a little bit further. Just he didn't a mean no bit. harm.
3: He was he just didn't. having a good fun, a good fun time. He, you was, know?
0: he was having a fucking great time. But then after, um, you know, Nancy Dinan sang her version of, her slowed down version of Transmission, uh, the guy that was singing as Ian Curtis came out and sang his version. And that's when everyone stood up. There were two songs, three songs left. He sang Transmission and that's when they went into ceremony. And that, Was incredible. (laughs) Like a ceremony, hearing uh, them sing ceremony with a full orchestra, you know, playing the whole fucking thing was just incredible. And then, of course, came the full version of "Love Will Tear Us Apart." And to be in a room of Mancunians all singing their hearts out to "Love Will Tear Us Apart" was an experience that I will never forget. I'm getting emotional thinking about it. And I'll never forget the feeling that being in that room with those people, singing that song, the feeling that gave me, uh, it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. I, I will never forget it for as long as I live. And that's when, you know, Peter Hook started going like, come on, Manchester. Like, yeah. and, was, and he's got fucking Sulford Rolls spray painted on his fucking amp.
3: And Guitar are <laughs> spray painted. Like, like, who would do that? Steve Jones from Sex Pistols would do that too. Yeah. And I like that. I like that he just took the care to make every single detail count.
0: Every single detail.
3: Everything was personal. And, and, and you could just, I, I'm glad that we did a whole series on Jody vision to really be able to understand exactly what was going on and and to really just take it all in and the whole there was a candle there Mm -hmm. and I I know I know this is all good. It was so good. So it's hard to explain but Believe me. I
0: think we explained it pretty fucking well.
3: Actually we yeah, no, actually you did great. You did fantastic. Yeah. So New Order was really fun. They were Peter Hook was sublimable. <laughs> he know Peter Hook I I would I'm gonna watch him live as much as I possibly can any for chance the rest
0: of my life. Any chance we get, we will watch because the way that you put it, I think you put it really well, is that watching New Order was like watching someone go to work. Like and doing a really good job and it was fun and it was fine. Um I mean but the
3: Peter Hook was having sex with us, all of us, I swear to God, indiscriminately, just having sex with all of us.
0: It was incredibly passionate. And the crowd at New Order, like, they fucking sucked. They were awful. The crowd at Manchester, like, we were among the youngest people there. Like, we're there with people that saw... Joy Division in 1979 and 1980. There was a little old lady in front of me that looked like somebody's grandma, the most unassuming woman that you'd ever seen. You should have seen how excited she got when they played atrocity exhibition.
3: They have so much fun. <laughs> they were so much fun. There were kids again, and they were like we were all laughing with them because all like they they were drunk. Yeah. They were drunk. We were the only sober ones because we just flew in from Ireland. And and so, like, they were just trash, but they were fun trash. They were. I I wish I, we could have gone out for another pint with them or something. But man, what a fun group of people. The Mancunian, the people from Manchester are fucking fantastic. And they know how to not just put on a show. They know how to be a part of a show.
0: They really do. I, I, the, the adjective I would use to describe the people of Manchester is unabashed. Yes. Completely and totally, especially the older generation.
3: Oh, good old Terry Mason. (laughs) (laughs) He's her mascot after all. But yeah, so that was... That was dispatches from Manchester. That's mm-hmm. that was our th- that is our time there in Manchester that we spent there. Our tax free vacation ish <laughs> time.
0: Tax yeah. deductible.
3: Tax deductible. <laughs> tax deductible. It yeah. wasn't tax free. Oh. Was it?
0: A- and I also, by the way, I, I also got to go to Clampdown Records, uh, and I picked up uh, original pressings of Substance, uh, the original an original pressing of the Atmosphere uh, single. Uh, I fucking got you know the third half or the second Happy Monday album. I got the second Buzzcocks album, like, or the first Buzzcocks album. Like, I got my fucking Manchester Hall. My God! It was one of the best record store days of my fucking life. And also I went to another Uh, record store that actually is, you know, my favorite place to find new music. If you want to check it out, it's piccadillyrecords.com. They put amazing lists of staff picks, but I actually got to go to Piccadilly Records to say hi, and they had no fucking clue what I was talking about. Uh, But I got a great book there. It's called Manchester, It Never Rains, A City Prime for Punk Rock by Gareth Ashton that we were able to use for this extra play.
3: Yes. I got to read a, a big chunk of it and it is just a lot about the scene, a lot about what was going on back in the day. And man, it is extensive, but it is, I would say necessary. Yeah. If you want to go check out Manchester uh, music scene or just check out their music history scene.
0: Yeah. Cause this, is, cause it only co- covers like 18 months uh, from like 1976 to 1977. It's fucking amazing. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and it's an oral history too. So you can't fucking beat those. All right. Well, that's our episode, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we are winding up on Patti Smith Part 3. Yes.
3: Next thing you're going to hear from us is Patti Smith uh, Part 1, mm-hmm. by the way. So yep. we are going to be releasing Patty Smith Part 1 very, very soon after this. Uh, and so two you, weeks, get ready, get ready. Yeah. It's going to be big. Yeah. It's going to be a three-part <laughs> series, finally. God damn. No more health problems.
0: No more. Please, God, no more health problems. I got a fucking reoccurrence of long COVID when I was yeah. in England. I, I'm sorry to everybody in Birmingham for having to hop off stage halfway through. Thank you to everybody in Birmingham who were who so sweet uh, about me having to uh, to duck out of, uh, of that show. Uh, and hopefully we'll be back soon. Uh, to yeah. give you the full treatment. So, thank you very much, Brum. Appreciate it.
3: Yes, very much so. Thank you.
0: And goodbye. Don't forget to follow us on No Dogs Pod uh, on Instagram. And if you want a No Dogs in Space t shirt, you can go to lastpodcastmerch.com.
4: Goodbye. Bye.
0: This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
1: Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen posed that question to guests like Paul Ryan. Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance, and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw